Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and if this is your first time joining in, thanks so much for being here. If you've been here since the beginning, thanks so much for coming back. Today's author is someone that I have been talking about for the past several months now. It is Jenna Rose Nethercott, the author of Thistlefoot my favorite book in a long, long, long time. Again, if you've been listening for the past couple months, you know that I have recommended this book several times, uh, once to Grady Hendrix, once just in passing. And when I finished this book a few months back, I loved it so much that I flat out just reached out to Jenna Rose and said, hi, you, you probably don't know who I am, but I really would like to interview you. And she said, yes. And here we are. In addition to writing Thistlefoot, which is this weird, macabre, creepy book that is centered around a house on chicken legs, it is steeped in deep Jewish folklore about Baba Yaga and all this great stuff. We talk about all of it in this discussion. But this, I just love the book so, so much. But in addition to being the author of Thistlefoot, Jenna Rose Nethercott just has a life and past that is truly fascinating. Uh, she does historical and supernatural research for the massively popular podcast, Lore. We talk about that in this discussion. She is part of a traveling poetry emporium. She grew up with parents, one of whom uh, was a clown. We get into all of it. It's it's such a wonderful conversation. You're really going to love it. This very much might be my favorite episode of the podcast so far. Uh, I just think you're really going to love it. We became fast friends, and I think that shines through in the discussion. Before we get to that, I want to give you an additional book recommendation and then just some other housekeeping. I am currently listening to the audiobook of Ghost Eaters by Clay McLeod Chapman. If you are a horror novel fan, you likely have heard or at least seen the cover of Ghost Eaters. It is a very creepy cover. Uh, It's a person with like a sheet over their face and what looks like complete voids where their eyes and mouth should be. It's a very, very scary book. It's kind of gothic punk. It is all about this drug called Ghost that once you take it, you basically can see all of the dead and uh, the dead people that are surrounding you. Uh, This isn't really a spoiler alert, but basically the main characters lose a friend very early on and in a quest to 
track him down and bring him back. They take this drug and it just sends their entire world into upheaval. Very creepy. Uh, trigger warnings for some for some body horror if that is something that you like to avoid. But if you're a horror novel fan, Ghost Eaters by Clay McLeod Chapman. Really, really good stuff. Uh, if you ever want to get a hold of me and you would like some customized book recommendations, you can always email me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. Feel free to send me uh, any of your passions. I love reading those and I give away a gift card every single month to bookshop.org to a random person who has sent me their passions. So thank you in advance for those. And then also, if you want to leave me a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, wherever it is, I know every podcast tells you that it really helps them. And that's because honestly, it really, really does. So if you could take 30 seconds to just do that, no, send me a screenshot of that and send it to me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I'll give you some customized book recommendations. Really, really do appreciate it. It helps other bookish people find the podcast more easily. Okay, that's all the housekeeping. You can always find me on Twitter, or I'm sorry, you can find me on Twitter too, but on Instagram and TikTok at Passions and Prologues. Um, but no more delaying. We are going to get to the main event. I am so excited to say I hope you enjoy this discussion with Jenna Rose Nethercott, author of Thistlefoot on Passions and Prologues. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, the paper fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Okay, Jenna Rose, what is the thing that you are super passionate about that we're going to be diving into today? I am absolutely obsessed with supernatural folklore and like spooky monster history. Yeah, and you know, the cursed stuff. The cursed stuff, exactly. And Jenna Rose isn't just saying this, she does research for the podcast lore, like one of the most pod popular podcasts. In the world. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. But first off, like, how did you come to discover this interest of yours? Was it something that you were curious about as a kid? Did it come along later in life? Like, how did you discover this passion? Yeah, so I guess from probably a bunch of different outlets, but I've always been obsessed with monster stories. When I was a kid, I was a very scared little kid. Like, everything scared me to the point where I had to develop this like acute system of protective talismans around myself to just like chill the hell out mm -hmm. like I uh, played the clarinet when I was a little kid and uh I I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to anyone before but I played the clarinet as a kid and I convinced myself that if I had my clarinet on me no monsters could kill me because of the beautiful power of music <laughs> so I would carry my clarinet around to protect myself from ghosts and monsters um so I really started uh, it, with quite an antagonistic relationship to these <laughs> topics but then um well for one uh, my dad is a very whimsical gentleman and I grew up listening to a lot of his sort of 
fairy stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, also when I was 11, I started watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, sure. which in my humble opinion is the greatest story ever told in human history. And that really converted me in a big way. Uh, yeah. And then, I mean, I was always interested in history and in stories, uh, in in the stories that people tell and what it says about them. And it wasn't until I got to college and I was studying at, a year abroad at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And I started taking a class in their School of Scottish Studies department that was called The Supernatural World. And it was specifically about folklore ethnology. So the social and the psychological functions of folklore, right? So like, literally that. Why are people telling the stories that they're telling? And very specifically, what does it say about them? What does it say about a culture? What does it say about an individual psychology to feel the need to tell a certain kind of story or invent a certain kind of creature? And I realized like, oh, that's it. That's been the thing. That's been the common thread between all the stories that I end up really drawn to is they all have this metaphorical root where something that we are too uncomfortable looking at directly is transformed into this kind of bloated, metaphorical, hyperbolistic creature or phenomenon Mm -hmm. that's easier somehow to look at than the actual human thing. So I, first off, I love that. And I, I, every, everything you say, I want to ask you 15 questions about, but I I will try to stay on task. I, you were talking about like having this kind of fascination with it, but being afraid of these stories when you were younger. And you talked about Buffy. I feel like I was the same, but for, are you afraid of the dark? The like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like the same thing, like I would be terrified of it, but I couldn't stop watching it. And I wanted to know about these stories. And then I remember, um, I remember watching Edward Scissorhands with my parents and my mom listens to this, so she's probably gonna laugh. Like I remember watching it and then being so creeped out that like, I couldn't walk by windows at night for like a week. Like I would crawl. Oh, no. under them. Yeah. <laughs> but the same thing, like, and even now I don't love, I don't love watching horror movies, but I love mm-hmm. like reading about horror stories. And I love, love, love horror novels and it's the same, like, it, it is like, for me, I think you're right. It gets like the psychology of it and like understanding the reasoning behind the monsters mm-hmm. and things like that. But yeah, for- I hate the feeling of being scared because mm-hmm. for me, I think, you know, as a writer, I have a pretty overactive imagination. Yeah. And so that feeling of fear does not end when like the movie ends. Mm-hmm. It like stays with me for many days and it's it sucks. I don't like that feeling. Um, but I love the the features and the tropes within horror. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, yeah, I love monsters. I love spooky stories. I love all of the archetypes that go into making horror, but I don't actually like the feeling of being scared. Yeah, no, what 100%. I, I feel the exact same. One, I, uh, I hate found footage films because I feel like the whole gimmick of found footage films is to have something jump out at you on the screen. And like, yeah. I just, I feel like j- jump scares are cheap. And like, I was always terrified of clowns as a kid. And now I have a weird fascination with them. And well, I have some news for you, my friend. I, yeah, we're gonna get to, we're gonna get to some news in a little bit. Like, there's um, I don't know if you've read them yet, but there is a young adult horror novelist named Adam Caesar, and he wrote this book called Clown in a Cornfield that came out a couple years ago. And then he had a second one that came out, Clown in a Cornfield Two: Friendo Returns. The name of the clown is literally Friendo. Um, and it's like, I don't know. There's something about it. I don't know why it is about a book. If like I can control 
the visuals in my mind, but like, I know there's no jump scare, even like you can write the creepiest atmospheric book, but I can like put it down or I can pause it in the audiobook and like I can take it into my own time. But, but yeah, I don't know. I, are you like the same way? Like you said, you don't like that feeling of being scared, but I assume given like that Thistlefoot, well, not like a straight horror novel does have some very creepy aspects to it. Like, is that, are those the types of books you enjoy reading too? Yeah, I mean, I love spooky, and I, I, yeah, I like spooky, but not necessarily scary. I don't like mm. sort of graphic, gratuitous, uh, like gore. I'm not a gore person. I don't really like body horror. Um, but it's so interesting to me that you bring up like jump scares versus uh-huh. literature because this is literally a debate that I've been having just the past month and become like very obsessed with, which is the idea of is it possible to create a jump scare in a book. And so I became really uh, fascinated by this because I just finished watching The Haunting of Hill House, the, the Hill House series by Mike oh. Flanagan. Um, and it was so good. It's so good. Uh-huh. And um, there's, I don't know if you remember, but there's this iconic jump scare yeah. in that. And I became fascinated by this particular jump scare because for those who haven't seen it, uh, there's this jump scare moment where... You know, okay, backtracking, you know, with a typical jump scare, the kind of contract of a jump scare is that, you know, one is going to happen. There are clues that something is going to jump out. And so a lot of the tension and the fear comes from knowing it's going to happen, but not knowing when. So your whole body tenses up. And then when it finally happens, it's actually kind of a release. It's a catharsis and essentially the fulfilling of a contract. You were promised that something would scare you and it did. Um, this particular jump scare, which for those who have seen it, the one that happens in the car, car, you know what I'm talking about. Of course. So this jump scare completely subverts that contract where a, rather than warning you, there's going to be something that jumps out your body, feeling that tension and then having a release. It isn't a moment where there is no horror tension. There's two characters Mm -hmm. arguing, but there's no horror tension. You have no indication that there is going to be a jump scare. And then the jump scare comes out of nowhere. And it's terrifying because it it is instead of fulfilling a contract with the jump scare, it's betraying the contract that you're safe. Um, And it just, I was like, oh my God, it's the same action, but it has a completely different psychological effect because it's actually breaking a contract instead of fulfilling one. And then, yeah, got me to thinking about can you do that in a book? I can take that one step further. Uh, that particular scene, because again, like once I watch something creepy, then I'm like, okay, I need to read and find out about that creepy thing. The actors involved didn't know when the jump scare was going to happen. They just mm-hmm. knew their dialogue. So they that's why like, if you know what we're talking about, it feels so authentic. It's because they also did not know when, when something was going to happen. Um, but so what have you come to decide? Do you think you can do a jump scare in a book or what what has been kind of the conclusion for you so far? So going back to sort of what you were saying a moment ago about like the reason you enjoy reading horror as opposed to watching it is because you have this control of the pacing, right? Mm -hmm. Where I think it's really, really hard, if not maybe impossible to do a jump scare in literature, because for one, a jump scare relies on entirely on pacing. It relies on something coming forward to you, to, towards you that you have no ability to slow down or, mm-hmm. or back away from. Where in reading, for one, you can control the pacing. Two, you can kind of glance ahead a little bit. Like, yeah. And sometimes you can't really help it. Your eyes can flick ahead 
and catch what's coming. And three, which I think is the most important element of a jump scare, is I think a jump scare, it's something literally jumping at you Mm -hmm. in the screen. So it's not a psychological fear. It's a body fear. It's Mm -hmm. your brain registering that something real is jumping at you. And I don't know if that can happen in the written word because your brain couldn't misinterpret Mm -hmm. a piece of information that it's reading as a real threat jumping at you. That said, I've been polling all my friends about this topic to see if they've ever read a jump scare in a novel. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten two uh, compelling responses. One is two separate friends both said that there's a moment in The Only Good Indians that could constitute a jump scare. I haven't read it, but the fact that two separate people said it I, makes me wonder. So I, my episode, we're recording this in early February and the episode that came out last week was with Grady Hendrix and he and I talked mm-hmm. about the only good Indians. And I've been thinking a lot about it this week again. I, that's fair. I do know this, the part they're talking about <laughs> and there's definitely a part that would constitute it. So I, I, I would agree with them. So I'm, uh, what was the, what was the second one? The second one is, a, is a sleeper one. This is interesting where, um, The second one, now I wish I could remember which novel, but there's a Virginia Woolf novel where a protagonist is killed in a parenthetical. And that, I think, is a really interesting approach to the, how to translate jump scare into Mm -hmm. writing. The idea of something happening in a parenthetical as if it could be removed from the story and it wouldn't matter is very jarring. And so I do wonder... Actually, I'm just thinking of this now, but like a jump scare on the screen is about something becoming momentarily very loud and arresting. Mm-hmm. What if the equivalent of a jump scare in literature is the reverse? It's something become it's something major being very quiet and dismissed. I that like shouldn't that. be. Yeah, I like That's that a lot. <laughs> That's a really good theory. The, the other one that I would think of that came out last year, there's a book called The Honeys by Ryan LaSala. Um, who was on the show a while back and a buddy of mine, but like, it's, it's a horror novel and it's about these, like this summer camp where there's just weird things going on with these kind of like mean girl type people. And there is a scene in a cave. I will not give anything away. Cause like, he's done like TikToks and stuff where he's like, Does, has anyone gotten to chapter 29 yet? Like when the first came <laughs> out. And it is one of those moments where it's like, I was reading it and I, I can't think of many other books. Like as I'm reading it, the the thing that happens is so completely out of left field from the 28 chapters you've read through that. Like I audibly was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like, <laughs> so I, I think, I think you're right. Like I think the, like the loud thing happening quiet and like being able to be removed and also <laughs> like something that is just so, it's just, it, it's almost like a magic trick to what he did. Cause it's like, it's so completely out of left field, but it still fits within the realm of the story. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's, I feel like we could talk about this for six hours, but. I know, it's so great. <laughs> it's so interesting. So, okay. So getting back to like your interest in the macabre and everything is like when I, like I said, when I say that you take this seriously, like you do supernatural and historical research for lore. So like how did your interest in Buffy and your fascination with this really interesting class that, you know, that you studied abroad, how did that transform into like, you are going to do this historical research professionally and, yeah. yeah and then also well, how does it work great questions all um yeah so basically after I took that class and I made that discovery I uh, sh- sort of shifted my studies and ultimately emerged with a degree in a combination of writing theater and supernatural folklore ethnology mm-hmm. so I, I have a degree in folklore essentially and 
all of my writing is rooted in folklore, which, you know, you've read Thistlefoot, you, you know that firsthand. Um, but Thistlefoot is far from the only thing I have written that is rooted in folklore and folkloric studies. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I can safely say everything that I write is influenced by um, and inspired by my my folklore studies and my time as a folklorist. Uh, so you would think that that would kind of be the natural way that I ended up with a job for Lore, which is, you know, a supernatural folklore history podcast. I was a longtime listener of Lore. I'd listened since the beginning, have always loved it. I used to joke that Aaron Mankey was my, uh, my unofficial sponsor of my first book tour, where I was driving around the country. I converted my Honda fit into a tiny camper. I was on the road for eight months straight with a puppet show in the trunk of the car, performing a puppet show that animated this book of poetry called the lumberjacks dove that I had written. And anyway, I was listening to so much lore that when I got home, the first thing I did was I bought a Casper mattress, (laughs) which is like one of the lore sponsors. Uh So anyway, uh, and I'd always kind of dreamt of like, man, it would be amazing to work. This is like my dream job would be Mm -hmm. to just like do spooky cursed research for this show so you would think that like my qualifications would have gotten me that job um but I I have to admit I kind of got it through a tinder date Mm -hmm. um I went on a tinder date with this guy we ended up actually becoming really close friends and one of his best friends was one of the head producers on lore and when we met and she realized my background uh she connected me to Aaron and one thing led to another. So, I mean, yes, it was my credentials, but uh-huh. I like to say it was Tinder. <laughs> it's a way better story too. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, uh, and in terms of how it works, yeah. um, basically I am, I, I do a combination of research and also writing the episodes for them. Uh, that's my, my newest duty is I've just stepped, I've just become the first person ever other than Aaron himself to write lore, which I'm really excited about. That's amazing. And the way it works is once a year, our team of like nine people uh, do what's called a writer's room, where we all bring four or five topics, episode ideas to the table. We just actually had it last week for this coming year. And we pitch ideas. And then we slot in a whole year's worth of episode ideas. Mm-hmm. And then myself and whoever else is researching that year gets to pick from that pile, which are the ones we want to dive into. And each week we get a new outline and I basically am given just a little skeleton information. Mm -hmm. So act one is about, uh, you know, the, the history of the general region of Lake Lanier. Mm -hmm. Act two is about a history of all the drownings in Lake Lanier. Act three is one specific ghost story from Lake Lanier. And then the epilogue is another lake somewhere else that also has ghosts associated Mm -hmm. with it. So that's kind of the skeleton format we work with. And my job is each week, I take that little skeleton and I flesh it out into a 15 page research outline with complete bibliography. Mm-hmm. So yeah, spooky sleuthing. I'm digging through newspapers.com archives, mm-hmm. reading JSTOR articles, scrolling through the web. I have this, um, you know, a whole shelf next to me, which you can see Adam, your, your listeners can't, but um it's all my folklore ethnology books. And so, yeah, it's, it's a blast. It's, I know just the worst things 
mankind <laughs> can ever know. As, and as I'm re- really unbearable at parties now, I have to tell you. I was just going to say, I won't ask because obviously you said you're planning for upcoming season. That would be truly a horrible question. But <laughs> what are some of your favorite stories you've researched, researched in the past that have, that have already come out on episodes you can actually talk about? I'm like, were there, like, what are some yeah, of the stories which ones that have come out? stopped in your tracks and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that is a thing. I, I'll be honest, I can't quite remember which has come out and which haven't. But um, I can say that I've become very, very obsessed with hot air balloon disasters. Um, I, I'm not sure if that one's... There's a couple of those. I'm not sure if they've come out. But yeah, um, yeah there's some really top-notch mm-hmm. hot air balloon disasters in, in French ballooning history. Um, and very obsessed with the way that uh, people were so into hot air balloons mm-hmm. in the height of what was called balloonomania. Um, so yeah, I know a lot about balloons plummeting out of the sky on fire. Uh, folks used to do um, these shows <laughs> in the early days of like balloon hype. Mm-hmm. Uh, balloonists would go up and they would set off a ton of fireworks around their hydrogen balloons. Sure, why which, not? Suffice to say, <laughs> didn't work out so well. Um, but yeah, wait, I, I'm trying to be vague about that because I don't know if that episode's come out, but. Um, here's one that I think has come out. I'm pretty sure. If not, I'm sorry, Aaron. (laughs) I spoiled it. But, okay. So there is this phenomenon called star jelly. And have you ever heard of this star jelly? I want to say maybe, but when you describe it, it might be something I'm thinking of totally different. So go ahead. I definitely had not heard of it until I researched it for this episode, but star jelly is basically since the 1300s, mm-hmm. there have been reported incidents, uh, largely in England, but all around the world, of people seeing a shooting star, a comet, or mm-hmm. meteor, you know, um, seeing the meteor land somewhere in a field, or it looks like it landed, uh, and then the next morning going out to investigate, and instead of finding a meteor or a crater or anything, they just find a big pile of jelly. Huh. And <laughs> yeah, so this is real. <laughs> and it's called star jelly. And there were different names for it throughout time. My favorite detail of this whack concept is that when it first came about in the 1300s, like, there was a doctor who was convinced it had medicinal purposes and that you should like smear star jelly all over your body. And, you know, he was kind of viewed as a hack, but Uh he was really into this idea. Except back then it wasn't called star jelly. It was written in this sort of old English and it was called, it was spelled S L Y M E of the S T E R R E S slime of the stairs. Oh my God. That's incredible. (sighs) Yeah. That is not slime of the stairs. Yeah. And so basically, um, they think, you know, obviously meteors do not turn into jelly. That's not. Oh, yeah. this is another great detail about it. In parts of Mexico, there's also a name for it. It is Caca de la Lune or Shit of the Moon. Okay, this is so incredible. So obviously, normally I ask authors when they come on, like, how slash if does your passion connect to your writing? Yours is very kind of straight through line. It's obvious. But I, yeah, it's a little <laughs> obvious, but I guess like how did Thistlefoot come to be? And this will kind of be also our way of, of talking about it. I've I've put off fawning over your book for long enough and I want to do that now. So how did how did Thistlefoot 
come to be obviously again rooted in folklore but how did this this book come to kind of take over your brain for a while so i was on that aforementioned eight month long puppet jaunt around america and living in the trunk of my car and sleeping on couches and just driving around uh, i was in a new city every Every two days did over a hundred shows. So suffice to say, by about five months into that, I was feeling absolutely deranged. Mm-hmm. And the idea of Baba Yaga's house on chicken legs, this walking house that you never have to leave because it is coming with you, sounded very, very nice <laughs> to me at that particular moment. And I'd always been really drawn to this figure. Uh, this hut on chicken legs is from Slavic, Eastern European, Russian folklore, in which Baba Yaga, who is a crone witch figure from Russian folklore, lives in this sentient house that walks through the forest on chicken legs. And yeah, I'd always really loved that folktale. I honestly can't tell you where I first heard it. I didn't grow up on it, but it, it entered my consciousness at some point. And I've the house in particular always really, really connected with me. I've always been an itinerant person. I grew up uh, with my family's touring clown act. I was a professional child clown uh, who spent a lot of my youth on the road. And then in my 20s, I was a traveling busker who was hitchhiking and hitchhiking around the country and around Europe and writing poems to order on the street on an antique typewriter. And I wouldn't be in the same place for more than you know, usually a couple of weeks at the most, a few months at a time. Mm-hmm. So I spent my entire twenties. And so, yeah, just this intense restlessness and itinerance that made me really relate to this figure because at the same time, I've always been a real homebody and like, mm-hmm. I love nesting and like, I love being in my bed. I do all my work in bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this, this house on chicken legs kind of felt like me in a way, um, in a way of combining these two seemingly incongruous parts of my life. And so, yeah, I was on the road with this tour and I wanted to start coming up with the idea for a novel because mm-hmm. my agent said, that's what people pay for <laughs> instead of poetry. So I was like, fine, sir, I will write a novel. And the first idea that came into my mind was I had this image of the hut on chicken legs Mm -hmm. standing in a Walgreens parking lot and like scratching at a candy bar wrapper. And I just thought that was hilarious. Like Uh I love when these folkloric images that we think of as kind of antiquated and yeah, just sort of whimsy, Mm -hmm. antiquated, folky uh, are placed into these contemporary settings and the chafing that ensues and so I just thought that was a really fun image and a really fun concept and then I started thinking okay well like if you were to take this figure of this walking house and actually place it in the world I live in in contemporary United States what would that look like and that naturally led to the thought of okay well it would be this immigrant figure from this Eastern European setting, oh, my family were immigrants from this Eastern European setting. And immediately then that led me to connecting it into the story of my own family's immigration. So throughout the book of Thistlefoot, it weaves together this Baba Yaga folklore with contemporary American road trip stories, and most notably, the story of a pogrom that took that took place in the year 1919 in a Jewish shtetl in what is now Ukraine, what was at the time Russia. 
And uh, yeah, and that's the actual story of the shtetl that my family came from. So it was a combination of kind of my life now, my ancestors' lives, and the stories that I loved. Oh my God. Okay, so I obviously adore the book. I did not know that it was so like deeply rooted in your own family history, which is phenomenal and heartbreaking. And and kind of fucked up, yeah. A little bit, just a little bit, yeah. But um, I want to ask you like from a letter part of the story, because there is, there's this really, really fascinating puppet show that takes place throughout the the story and it and it is woven in in such a way like I love how you kind of put little aspects of the puppet show throughout the book itself but I want to I want to know about like what was like the traveling show your family was putting on when when you were a kid like what 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 was that I, I need to know more about this yeah, so okay, this is real. I've mentioned this in interviews before, but I think it I think it explains me well, so it it bears repeating. Um my father is a clown and my mother is a therapist. And here I am. <laughs> Sorry, that today. just that shouldn't be my first reaction to laugh, but that's just a perfect No, it should. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's totally deranged. Um so I guess this is what you get when you combine those two entities. And so, yeah, my, my dad, who was a, a writer and a clown, he doesn't clown anymore. He still writes. But um, he and my brother and I, every summer, would put together like a family clown show. And we weren't affiliated with anything. We weren't circus clowns. We weren't party clowns. We were just like, I don't know, loose clowns, <laughs> free range clowns. Free range clowns, yeah. Free range clowns. Yeah, free range clowns. And um So basically what we would do is every year in Vermont, all of the libraries would do their summer reading programs, right? Like most libraries do. There's some sort of summer reading program for kids. And each year, the summer reading program in Vermont had a different theme. So every library in the state would be following that same sort of playful theme. And so each summer, my dad, my brother, and I would write a clown show based on that theme, and then we would tour it to all the libraries in the state. And that was my summer job growing up, was touring around to these libraries doing this like bit comedy show (laughs) with my eight-year-old brother. I was like 12 at the time. And uh, my dad, my clown name, which I named myself at age four, was Chicken Bump, which I honestly think sounds like a venereal disease, but also is sort of on brand um, thematically. And I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with it. Yeah. So, yeah, my dad's clown name was Jackaloon, and my brother's clown name was Red DeLed, the music clown, which is ironic because my brother is like the most tone deaf person I've met in my entire life. Um, and Red DeLed was referring to the fact that his costume was just red sweatpants and a red sweatshirt, and then he'd paint his whole body red. <laughs> God, this is the So, most- we were really given free range to. Uh, to create our our clown characters. This is the most wholesome shit I've ever heard in my entire life. I love this so so much. This is fantastic. <laughs> what did your mother think of the clownage going on? She was supportive, but maybe didn't fully understand what she'd gotten herself yeah. into. Uh, she was definitely not participating as a clown. Yeah. Uh, um. So I, I want to ask, and you can tell me that you can't talk about it. And I only ask because I, I think I saw a tweet about it. But do you, you mentioned like everything you've ever written is somewhat based in folklore. Is the next thing you're working mm-hmm. on, like, are you allowed to talk about whatever you're working on next yeah. at the moment? I would love to hear about it sure. if, you, if you can. 
I would be glad to talk about it. That would um, be great. Yeah. So, so what's uh, what's the next uh, thing coming from the Jedero's Nethercot? The dark recesses of my mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um. So Thistlefoot was sold as part of a two book deal. Mm-hmm. It uh, with a novel being Thistlefoot and a short story collection, which I actually wrote before I wrote Thistlefoot. And so right now I am polishing up this collection of uh, kind of magical realism, slipstreamy, spooky Uh short stories. And that is called 50 Beasts to Break Your Heart and Other Stories. Uh, the, the titular story, 50 Beasts to Break Your Heart, is sort of a mythical bestiary inspired by the Latin bestiaries of all creatures I made up. Um, and then, yeah, but all of the stories in the collection are are these kind of, yeah, weird fiction. And a lot of them are tied into, like, themes of longing and uh, loneliness, uh, but also spooky, which is really my brand. is like, sad and spooky. Yeah. So... Does it have, So that is Sorry, does it have like a release date ish yet or you're not sure? We don't have a release date yet, but it's gonna be sometime in this like in the spring, probably either late winter, early spring of twenty twenty four. So oh, that's man. the plan. Uh, so. Yeah, and I'm excited about that. So right now I'm I'm editing that and then I'm also starting to get ready a novel pitch to send uh, to try and Mm-hmm. to try and sell a novel, uh, my next novel on spec yeah. before I dive into that. And that is also definitely, that, that one's sort of a New England Gothic um, and Ooh. based in my hometown and definitely uh, folklore inspired, but very much uh, a, a mythologizing of the place that I come from. It's oh, amazing. Um, okay, last question for you. You have been very generous with your time. You just came back from a book tour. You agreed to do this when I cold emailed you. So last question for you. I always have every author give some sort of recommendation. Um, it can be a book. It can be a show. It could be, I've had people say their recommendation is like, go for a walk or make a yeah. bowl of soup. Like it could be just a recommendation that you want more people to do or know about. Anything will suffice. Oh, that's so good. There's so many good things. Okay, I'll do some I'll do a book one and then I'll do a random one. Love it. So the book recommendation I always give is anything by Kelly Link. Mm-hmm. I am obsessed with Kelly Link. I think that she's just truly one of the greatest short story writers that has ever lived in history. Um, yeah, that's Kelly L-I-N-K Link. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite of hers, I think, is Magic for Beginners, but everything is great. And she has a new short story collection coming out in March that I'm very excited about. Um so yeah, that's my my book recommendation. And my thing recommendation, this is uh, my new life-changing gadget. I feel like every winter I get a new stupid gadget that just like changes the game for me. Um, one year, I guess I'll give two. One year, it was like this little plastic cup, essentially, that suction cups over the overflow drain in your bathtub that allows uh-huh. you to fill your bathtub beyond the overflow drain. And that, that is, was a game changer. <laughs> as a bath lover, this is huge news. I love that. Yeah, that's it's it's amazing. It really incredible. Yeah. Um, but the, this year's one is I got a little plug-in coffee mug warmer yeah. because so I'm I'm a tea drinker. Mm-hmm. Every single morning of my life, I make a cup of tea, get so excited about it, put it on my bedside table, and immediately forget that it's there. <laughs> And then four hours later, remember, and then have an ice cold cup of tea. Um, But not anymore, my friend. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. Because now I make my cup of tea, put it on my 
electric mug warmer next to my bed, forget about it. And then it's still warm when I remember. You absolute monster. I am a, like, (laughs) I make my coffee or tea and then I like drink it in the next five minutes. So I make fun of anyone who does this, but I, that is, that is such a good recommendation. I, Generos, I, I cannot think, like, no one will see the video of this, but you can attest, I have had a shit-eating grin on my face for the last half hour. Like, I have never met someone who's so instantly, like, everything you talked about, I got more and more obsessed of. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.